Hello, this is Sandra Hindman, founder and president of Les Enlumineurs. We specialize in manuscripts, miniatures, historic jewelry, and other small-scale works of art from the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Welcome, and please enjoy today's podcast. Hello again, listeners. I'm Kristen Racanello, producer and occasional host of the podcast. Last week, Les Lumineers' senior specialist and head of text manuscripts, Laura Light, gave a brief introduction to the text manuscript website and a few of the special books found there. Today, I'm going to follow up that episode by answering some basic questions applicable to all manuscripts and medieval texts. What did medieval people actually write on? What were those materials, and also how were they made? Books that are manufactured today are made on paper or are adapted into a new technology via production through digital output devices like computer screens, cell phones, and e-readers. Generally, I grew up equating books with paper, but this was not the material originally used for manuscript production. Paper, though, is a thin, pressed material usually made from a combination of milled plant and textile fibers. Importantly, paper is not a woven material. The first paper-making process was documented in China during the Eastern Han period, traditionally attributed to the court official Kai Lun. During the 8th century, Chinese printmaking spread to the Islamic world, where pulp mills and paper mills were used for paper-making and money-making. The oldest known paper document in Europe is the fascinating Missal of Silos from the 11th century, probably made using paper from the Islamic part of the Iberian Peninsula. The Missal is Codex Number 6, held in the library of the monastery of Santo Domingo de Silos in Spain. It is one of a number of liturgical manuscripts of Mozarabic rite, which have been preserved in the Silos Library, despite the suppression of the Mozarabic rite in 1080 by Pope Gregory VII. The Codex is named after its current location in Silos, but it was not actually made at the Silos Monastery's scriptorium. It was made at the monastery of Santa Maria la Real of Najera. The paper for the missal, made of hemp and linen rags, is believed to have been manufactured in the Islamic world, probably in Islamic Spain, even though Najera was in Christian territory at the time the document was created. So, paper making reached Europe as early as 1085 in Toledo and was firmly established in Spain by 1150. It is clear that France had a paper mill by 1190, and by 1276, mills were established in Fabriano, Italy, and in Treviso and other northern Italian towns by 1340. Later European improvements to the papermaking process came in the 19th century with the invention of wood-based papers, like those that we have today. This was not the first use of wood in a paper-like material, however. Papyrus is a material similar to thick paper that was used in ancient times as a writing surface. It was made from the pith of the papyrus plant and was first used in Egypt at least as far back as the first dynasty, so that's around the year 3100 BCE. It was also used throughout the Mediterranean region and in the Kingdom of Kush. 
Amate is a type of bark paper made from the pulp of fig and mulberry trees that's been manufactured in Mexico since pre-contact times. It was used primarily to create codices, or books. Amate was extensively produced and used for both communication, records, and ritual during the Triple Alliance, or that is, the alliance between the three major Nahua city-states of the Aztec Empire. After the Spanish conquest, its production was banned or otherwise prohibited and replaced by European paper production. Amate paper production never completely died out, however. It remained strongest in the rugged, remote mountain areas of northern Puebla and northern Veracruz states. Later, Atomi craftspeople began selling it in cities like Mexico City, where the paper was revived by Nahua painters in Guerrero to create new indigenous crafts, which were then promoted by the Mexican government as a cultural heritage project. Today, Amate paper is one of the most widely available Mexican indigenous handcrafts, sold both nationally and abroad. Nahua paintings receive the most attention, but Otomi papermakers have also received accolades not only for the paper itself, but for the crafts made with it, such as elaborate cutouts. Okay, so if manuscripts in the medieval period were not written on amate or paper or papyrus, what were they written on? Well, most medieval manuscripts were made on a substance called parchment. Parchment is a tough, long-lasting material used as both the material for manuscript pages, but also often as a book-covering material. Sometimes the term vellum is used for parchment, but vellum is parchment and parchment is not vellum. Let me explain. Vellum is a refined version of parchment made from calf skin. You might notice that the terms parchment and vellum are now often used interchangeably, but there is this important distinction. Parchment refers to all parchment substances made from animal skins, whereas vellum is only made from calves. Manuscripts were written on parchment by folia. Skins, whether of sheep, goats, or calves, were prepared by being soaked in a solution of lye to loosen the hair and the fat and flesh, and then stretched taut on a frame and scraped by the parchmenter. I'll go into more detail about this process in just a moment. So that artisan used a blade shaped like a crescent moon, and thus that blade was called a lunellum, to remove the remaining hair and flesh from the hide. The strokes of this knife are actually sometimes still visible on the parchment page or binding. When the last bits of hair, fat, and flesh had been removed, and the skin was dry and taut on the frame, the parchmenter would then smooth the surface with a pumice stone. The final finishing was done by the scribes, who knew the quality needed for the text they were preparing to write. The calf skin, subjected to this labor-intensive process, might produce as few as three and a half medium-sized writing sheets, and thus parchment was an extremely expensive commodity. Often, imperfect parchment was used in the production of books in which the rounded edge of the animal's shape is still visible at the bottom of the folio. Sometimes holes are also visible in the parchment membrane. They could be original flaws, meaning scars or wounds in the animal, or these holes were sometimes produced by stresses during the stretching or finishing process. It is not uncommon to find that such holes were sutured to prevent further damage to the page. 
This suturing of parchment holes became an artistic opportunity for many artists, as we see colorfully embroidered holes in many manuscripts, including a group at the Morgan Library. Or, sometimes scribes might playfully doodle heads or animals peeping out of the holes in manuscript pages. Sometimes they even draw arrows to the holes to point them out. There are all sorts of creative ways of dealing with holes in parchment, so keep an eye out for them whenever you're looking at manuscripts. Parchment has some unique structural qualities, too. Typically, parchment is very resistant to mechanical damage, like tears or creasing, though it's easily susceptible to damage from mold and high temperatures. Parchment is also highly hygroscopic in nature, which means that changes in relative humidity can cause irreversible variations to its structural makeup. One of the problems with storing parchment is that excessive humidity can cause parchment to distort, while very dry conditions will make the parchment brittle uh, and snappy. Most skins used for parchment are between 1 and 3 millimeters in thickness before they're processed. Animal skin used for parchment all have basically the same structure, with slight variations due to the species, age, and diet of the specific animal. In general, Skin is composed of innumerable fibrils made up of protein, specifically the protein collagen, which are held in bundles that interweave in a three-dimensional manner through the skin. The fibrous material is composed of many long-chain molecules of collagen, which can react with certain environmental factors. For example, one universal property of collagen is that it exhibits sudden shrinkage when heated in water, starting at about 145 degrees Fahrenheit. Once it's removed from the animal, the skin is temporarily preserved, either by drying or liberal application of salt until it can be processed. The skin is then immersed in water for 48 hours, which cleans and rehydrates it. This step also removes non-collagenous materials like hyaluronic acid, dermatin sulfate, and plasma proteins. The skin is then soaked in a lime or an alkali solution, known as the limbing process. In the 19th century, chemicals were added to speed up this limbing process, which resulted in weaker parchments. These added compounds sometimes reacted to produce gypsum, giving the parchment a characteristic gray hue, so it's actually quite easy to tell when parchment has been made or treated in the 19th century. The skin is then stretched in suspension on a frame, as we discussed previously, constricting as it dries. This ensures even contraction across the entire parchment, meaning that it will remain flat, after being prepared, parchment is sometimes coated so that it's more receptive to pigment and ink. Historical coatings include chalk, egg whites, and matte paint. The manufacturing process, which removes the skin's natural fats and oils, means that parchment is more reactive to moisture and relative humidity than other skin-based materials, like leather. After being stretched, parchment has an inherent desire to revert to its original animal shape, especially if left unrestrained or exposed to repeated changes in relative humidity. Parchment is usually positively identified by sight, sometimes with the assistance of a hard lens or microscope. 
Visible hair follicle patterns, veining, scars, bruises, and sometimes fat deposits all help confirm the animal origin of the material. Additional light sources, including ultraviolet lights, can make these properties more easily identifiable. But sometimes visual examination is not enough to distinguish parchment from certain types of papers. Analytical testing, which involves removing a small piece of parchment, can be done by or under the supervision of a professional conservator to ensure positive identification. One type of this analytical testing involves examining the parchment specimen under a light microscope or scanning electron microscopy. A simple flame test can also be done. True parchment will emit the meaty smell of burned protein, while other look-alike materials will smell like paper or wood. And for those who own manuscripts who might be wondering at this point in the podcast, proper storage environments can help ward off all of these structural, chemical, and environmental changes which affect the long-term preservation of parchment objects. Storage factors must take into account the factors of the particular parchment object, including its condition, age, storage history, and your plans for future use. Illuminated manuscripts and composite parchment objects, which might include things like seals and ribbons, probably will have additional storage needs, as they incorporate multiple other types of materials that also need to be considered. Most importantly, a consistent storage environment is crucial for the long-term stability of parchment, which is especially vulnerable to changes in humidity, temperature, and other environmental factors. Microenvironments are a less expensive way to provide consistent storage for parchment if the external storage conditions are not ideal. Moisture-sensitive parchments can be stored sandwiched between plexiglass by inserting the matted parchment between two sheets of acrylic and taping off all of the sides. Parchment can also be stored in envelopes constructed out of polyester sheets. Now that you know a little bit more about parchment, parchment storage, and the making process for actually creating parchment from animal skin, how exactly did a scribe prepare to record a text on this very expensive material? After all, parchment was expensive and therefore most often reserved for manuscripts. So how did scribes take notes and prepare to copy out a text? Well, since antiquity, most note-taking practices have utilized tablets made of wood or wax. The earliest documented use of wax tablets dates from Italy in the 7th century BCE. The Etruscans used them not only for writing, but also as amulets for protection. Their wider use started with the Greeks, who were great beekeepers and had plenty of beeswax at their disposal. And for a short period, there was a ban on the export of papyrus from Egypt, meaning that wax tablets were in regular use. Styluses would have been employed to scratch letters into this smooth wax. Most tablets were made from wood. A flat, rectangular block would have been hollowed out and filled with wax. This would often then be blackened with a sooty coating so that the lighter color showed through when written on. Wax tablets were cheap and easy to reuse, and were ideal for teaching children to write. 
Wax tablets continued to be used in a slightly more limited but still widespread fashion until the 16th century and more sporadically thereafter until the 19th century. They assumed a number of forms, occurring singly as diptychs or polyptychs bound with leather, parchment or linen thongs, into the codex form, or even as larger notice boards or posters. Tablets were a cheap, reusable alternative to other writing surfaces, and the utilitarian character of the majority of examples, coupled with the problems of survival of organic materials in other than arid or waterlogged archaeological environments, has undoubtedly contributed to the relative scarcity of examples that still exist today. So scribes would turn to these wax tablets in order to ensure that they had recorded everything that they needed to write down in their manuscript before actually writing on that very precious material, parchment. By the end of the medieval period, we begin to see both parchment and paper circulating in Europe. Italian cartelai, or parchment and paper sellers, offered ruled parchment in various sizes for purchase. But paper was seldom used for monastic books until late in the Middle Ages. Imported paper was known in Italy from the 12th century on, but the first or second paper mill in Europe, again, was built at Fabriano, Italy, where paper is still made today. As we discussed earlier, there was another mill near Valencia in Spain. Mills appeared along streams, which could be used to drive wheels with hammers to pound the vegetable fiber into pulp. Paper was used for text manuscripts, but was ordinarily too thin and flexible for manuscripts that were to be illuminated with beaten gold, like books of hours or presentation copies. Paper was quite suitable, though, for drawings in pen or paintings with brush and ink. The great age of the parchment manuscript was the medieval period, but parchment does continue to be manufactured to this day, and you can order some for yourself from a specialist or even attend parchment-making workshops. So that's all for this introductory podcast on parchment, paper, and manuscript-based materials. We would love to hear your thoughts about this episode. Do you know something about parchment that I've left out of the talk? Or do you have a question about manuscript manufacture, paper, or the materials making up manuscripts, or even just an idea for an episode? Let us know. You can find out more about manuscripts and their production, as well as reach out with comments and questions through our social media at Les Ingenieurs. You can also visit our website or go online and order one of our many catalogs. Thanks for listening and have a great week.